Good morning. Um, today's scripture is from Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. When the master called the servant in, you wicked, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And then they lived happily ever after. That's what I told my kids last night. All right. My name is Sam. I'm part of the leadership here at Watermark. Um, I will, Tommy is not here today. Um, but I will continue on from Matthew. Um, actually, like someone was asking me, hey, is Tommy here today? I'm like, no, he's not here today. He's like, oh. And I'm like, who's speaking? Me. Okay, uh, also I broke my glasses last night. I was, I, this is the glasses that my wife actually fixed. With, she you know, super glued it together. Uh, <laughs> it's like last night I put it down and it just like the frame just broke apart. And I'm like, why is this happening to me? And I think the last time I preached or maybe the one before, I lost my other pair of glasses. So this was actually my backup. So if this goes, I... The service is over. We don't have any, because I can't read without my glasses, unless it's going to be like, you know, I, I, anyhow, anyhow. Uh, so this morning, we are going to continue on uh, uh, Matthew chapter, verse, chapter 18, uh, verse 21 to 35, and we're going to try to get to the heart of the parable. Um, as we see in this path, uh, there's going to be some who argue uh, sort of this Wrathful, wrathful God who sort of aligns himself with the king in the parable. Um, but as we will see today, as you have seen in the sort of Matthew series, uh, here's a God of forgiveness, of restoration, and reconciliation. And, and we will take these passages into sections and we'll just work at them, right? So uh, I'll pray and we'll get started right away. So Father God, thank you for your community. Help us to uh, listen to what you have to say 
through this passage. Help me to be clear uh, and where my words fail, O oh Father. I, I pray, Lord, that, that you will still get your message across. I pray, O oh Father, against any distractions. Help us to be focused. Help me to be focused. I pray for those who are not with us today. I pray for those who are sick, uh, you know, whatever their case may be. And uh, I just pray, Lord, that um, uh, all of this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Okay. All right. Um, so we are starting with verse 21. Get right into it. Uh, this is where Peter asked the question. Um, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And Jesus answers, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. I think there is this sort of logical flow here uh, where Jesus is talking about restoring relationships. Remember the passage before uh, of healthy confrontation. And Peter asked the question, how many times should I forgive someone? Seventy times seven. Some interpreters actually read this as 77 because in Genesis uh, chapter 4, verse 24, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Uh, But it doesn't really matter, and it doesn't really help us solve this math problem because this is not a math problem. You know, it's not like for me to count how many times someone has offended me and I, you know, in my clipboard or whatever, and I'm going to count every time that I forgave you. That's not the point. The, The point is, When you are wrong, you are to forgive. It's a hyperbolic way of saying, don't hold a grudge. Work it out and forgive, right? And so what's happening is that some rabbis actually taught to limit uh, forgiveness for a given sin up to three times, right? Um, I remember, uh, you know, just growing up, some of the pastors, whenever we would get to this passage, they would just joke about like how, uh, you know, uh, Peter was just trying to, you know, double it and add one. And he's just trying to be more righteous in this way. Uh, and I, I sort of imagine like almost, you know, it's seven being sort of the perfect number. And I think that's what Peter was trying to get at, that he was trying to do more, do better. It's like when your kids go, you know, I, I love you, infinity plus one. Or I love you, million plus one. That's sort of, that's sort of an idea. But it doesn't matter because it's about continually choosing to forgive. It's continually choosing to not get angry and to resent and to love this person. And I think there may be a possibility that Peter potentially might have someone in his mind as well. Uh, because I think it's in Luke where it's uh, uh, Luke 17, I think. Uh, that's sort of similar to this passage where Jesus tells them you have to continually forgive them. And the apostles replied... Father, give us faith. You know, that's their reply, is that you have to continually forgive. And the apostles are like, give us faith, because it's hard for us to do continuous forgiveness. Because the verses before this one was about dealing with someone who wrongs you and how to take steps to confront and restore that relationship uh, by going to the person privately, if they don't listen to you or if they refuse to listen and it's not reconciled or whatnot, there's no forgiveness there. You take one or two people with you uh, to sort of, as a neutral person, to sort of uh, help them see in their ways. If that doesn't work, you take it to the church uh, and so on and so on. So there's these steps that we were talking about in the previous passage. And then Peter asks, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? And Jesus was like, no, that's not it. 77 times, right? 
And, and, and so Jesus is trying to make sure, uh, using hyperbole, right, trying to get people to understand it. In verse 23 uh, to 27, we see here uh, where Jesus is breaking down even further with another story. He's retelling. Uh, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had sold to repay the debt. That the servant fell on his knees before him, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him. And cancel the debt and let him go. Now, here's the story. And the scholars say that this is probably this parable of a Gentile king. It's not a Jewish king. So such as one of Greek or polemic rulers of Egypt before Roman rule. The servants here could have been an upper-level class slave who was probably better off than, you know, the free people and the peasants that's around in the kingdom. And the servant might have been what you would call a tax farmer, Right? Uh, later on, they privatized tax farming, uh, but basically what his job would be, uh, you know, being sort of a vessel of the king, he would collect these taxes uh, for a profit, uh, but you, you couldn't waste time. You couldn't uh, be late with your payments. You uh, had to be super organized and, and, and tactful in how you collect these taxes and make sure the king got his pay efficiently. So that was the job, Right. Now, many peasant farmers at the time might have struggled with paying taxes, you know, if there's like a bad season or crop is not good or droughts. And, but this still did not lessen the responsibility of the tax farmer to give what is due to the king, right? The pressure is still on. So the amount of servant owed was actually insane. It's so crazy big that few commentaries actually mentioned that that Jesus and and the listeners were probably laughing at the amount of how far this king let this guy go into debt okay a talent is equivalent to 20 years of worker's salary right worker's wage you calculate that so it's much it's a, it's about 200 to 250,000 years of annual income, years of wages. I actually calculated that because I'm a bit of a math nerd. And, and uh, you know, what the average salary or the average, uh, no, the minimum wage in Florida is like, what, 850 or 875 or something like that? And then I took the, what is it, the minimum wage of America, which is, or min- minimum salary, which is like somewhere between four, four, 45 to 60K or whatever. And it, it works out to $4 billion to $10 billion dollars. So this guy owed a whole lot of money. Uh, and obviously, Jesus was using a tiny bit of uh, you know, hyperbole here. Um, it's actually calculated that it was more than the entire annual income of the king and probably more than the, uh, the, the actual money that was in circulation. So, you know, Jesus is exaggerating just a tiny bit. And to actually have something to compare, and if you even want to get more nerdy about this, Josephus reports that the annual uh, uh, collection of the taxes uh, in Galilee, in Judea, and some of these other territories were about 800 talents. So that gives sort of an, an idea of how incredible amount of debt this was in. It was laughable. And so the obvious point Jesus is trying to say is that this guy would not have been able to get out of this debt one way or another. I mean, you know, to put it in another way, this guy isn't some deep doo-doo, you know, like 
I don't know how else to articulate it uh, more for you. But in uh, verse 25, we go on. Uh, the king ordered this guy and his whole family to be enslaved, uh, his wife, children, and everything that he might have owned, to be sold off to make up for this incredible debt, which still doesn't really touch the amount of debt that this guy was in, right? Because the average price of slave was somewhere around 500 to 2,000 of days wages. So it's, it's like a drop in a bucket. Um, earlier I said this story was about a Gentile king, and you might you know, wonder how, we know, how would we know about this, since it's not clearly spelled out here. But the act of enslaving a family member was actually uh, repulsive to the Jewish community. Um, it, it was very much of a Gentile practice, and the Jewish people you know, just found it offensive. Um, also, the Jewish law did not permit torture. So th- those are some of the things that we do know. Now, in verse 26 to 27... Uh, sorry, I, I did went ahead a little bit actually, but then the uh, servant pretty much drew himself in front of the king and just begged and plead with him to give him a chance, saying he'll pay back, uh, you know, which is just desperation because there's no way this guy could have, we've already established that, there's no way that this guy could have touched uh, to pay back that debt. But again, again, selling him and his family is not really going to help the situation. So the story takes a very interesting turn. The king lets him off and forgives him, excuse me, and uh, forgives him of the debt. And given the ruthlessness of the ancient Near Eastern kings and the massive amount that is owed, it really doesn't make sense. But he does this. Uh, and, and so this is sort of a... a you know, you can imagine the, the listeners, the disciples, as they're hearing this, kind of amused by the situation. Now, going into verse uh, 28 to 35. Uh, but when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay that debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told the master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have the same mercy of your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, Jesus is saying that this guy, a fellow servant who probably worked for the king as well, owed his first servant, the tax farmer, who just was forgiven this incredible amount of debt, and was seen going after someone who owed him something of an equivalent to 100 days of labor. So extremely small, something that this guy probably could have paid, uh, but this guy had shown no mercy and put him in jail. And instead of paying it forward, uh, this guy, as he was shown by the king, he physically assaults the guy, choking him, uh, despite the begging and pleading of the other servant. But you know, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, you throw this guy in prison, how is he going to pay? So, I mean, this guy is obviously trying to get his family or friends or whatever to pitch in. So then the king hears about this. He gets super angry because the first servant forgave. The one he forgave puts another one of his employees out of commission, right? They all work for the king or the master. 
So not only does this make him look bad because he initially looked on as one who was showing mercy and benevolence. And now it looks like it was a bad judgment call. It makes him look bad. It makes him look dumb. Now, what is the point of this parable? Is it if we don't forgive someone, will God say, no, you are no longer forgiven? Uh, and not only that, you'll be sent away to be tortured. You know, is it that the God, God won't forgive me if I can't forgive someone else uh, what someone else did to me? Is that the point of this parable? And I know many of you are hopefully thinking that's not the case. Uh, but to get a better grasp of this parable, we need to understand the nature of parables. So uh, let's get a better understanding of, of, of how Jewish teachers use the parables. Because they used it pretty regularly, right? They used, parables are stories analogies that the teachers would use to drive a point and 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 usually it's very graphic uh you know sometimes the parables were satire uh jesus and paul all use satire and irony sometimes to reveal the hypocrisy uh that they were there and that they were dealing with either by putting a spotlight on those who were oppressing the weaker uh you know due to religious purity or rank or wealth or class or whatever it may be and rabbinic, uh, rabbinic parables often begin with, to what may such and such be compared to? Or this and this is like. Likewise, this parable in uh, you know, what we're looking at of the unmerciful servant in verse 23 starts out with, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so you have to look at the function of the parable, and there's usually a call for us to respond in a certain way. But the problem is the parables can be easily misinterpreted. One of the keys to understanding parables is to understand the original audience to whom it was spoken to. From another angle, parables are like jokes or satire. You know, it only makes sense once you get the joke, if you understand the points of reference. If you have to explain the joke, sometimes it loses that quality, right? It doesn't mean we won't get the joke or lose purpose of it. It's just, it's not going to be funny as the first time. You know, like you ever, you know, work or school or whatever, you know, you're in a bunch of group of people and one guy's telling a hilarious story. He's telling the story and everyone's laughing. And towards the end of that laughter, as it trails off, this, you know, one guy comes in and is like, what's so funny, guys? And it's like, you have to be there. You know, it's like, it's kind of hard, which is like most of my high school, actually. That was, I was that a guy. <laughs> But, you, you, you know, you had to be there, and no one will tell you, you know, why the story is that funny. But it's not funny as the first time. You, you get what I'm saying? I, I hope uh, that makes sense to you. And so sometimes parables are like this because we have to use a lot of our imagination and use the point of reference to get it, right? So that's the point. So the heart of the parable, and I think uh, as we get into this, the problem with us today is reading the parable in a way that sometimes I think we read a little bit too much into it. And what happens is we miss the most obvious points, right? Jesus uses people in his parable, people that the audience could relate to, those who were corrupt in the world. These are people that knew. They knew corrupt officials. They knew people who were in debt. They knew who were struggling to pay the tax debt. Uh, but within that, I think also there is this warning to those who have power over others, who may have leverage, who are in place of privilege to make sure that they also remember to forgive as they have been forgiven. And I think in Matthew's context, it speaks to the question of 
what we are to do for those who God considers the little ones, the lost, who is my neighbor. For those who identify with the servant who had some power and privilege to not take advantage of those who are in your community, who are your neighbors, those who God speaks of. But for those who identify with the servant who are also in debt, that there is forgiveness for the person, right? That even though the world may treat them unfairly and unjustly, that God will make this world right. The kingdom of heaven is generous, full of love and forgiveness. And before the parable, uh, the parable of the lost sheep was told from the point that God cares for the lost, right? In the early passage, Matthew's community is told that no one of them better be responsible for making these of who God considers the little ones go astray. You better not be responsible for that. And so then the parable of the lost sheep tells them also that we should reach out to pursue those who are lost, to bring them back into the fold, back into the family of God. And right before the parable of the unmerciful servant, Peter just asked the question, how many times should I forgive someone? Right? And Jesus tells them, This parable to illustrate the point. He's retelling the point. He's retelling the same parable and the same point and the same story. So the punchline isn't God is like this king and he will throw you away to be tortured if you don't forgive. The point is that we should forgive as we have been forgiven. Without limits. Without harboring judgment and anger toward others. Which is incredibly hard. So I get that. Uh, As I said earlier, I think the parable at the end was pointing to what we would consider natural consequences. You know, the servant was forgiven a massive amount of debt. And then he was not showing kindness. He was being violent toward someone else who owed much, much less. And I would say in this parable that that was the consequence for this person in this story. You know, if if a married couple gets divorced, there's natural consequences. It doesn't matter if there's, you know, uh, uh, forgiveness from the get-go or later on. You know, there's natural consequences for the family, for the kids, uh, for for finances, or whatever it may be. And I I remember a few times uh, working at a a, a youth camp, several youth camps. I remember it happened more often than it should have, I think. Uh, where, you know, little kids or, or teenagers would talk about how they were abused or s- sexually assaulted. And there were times where we had to call the authorities. Uh, because, and that was the natural consequences, right? I, I knew this one guy who I've known for almost six years. And, and no one in the community, no one you know, around knew that he was sexually uh, abusing his daughter. And it's heartbreaking, but we, you know, there are natural consequences for those actions. And so God is not trying to coerce us into forgiveness, right? That's not how forgiveness works. He's not, you know, I, am I really forgiving someone if someone is threatening me to forgive someone? Um, you know, again, I think we're falling into this religion, Uh, of things that I must do and I must not do to be saved. And we should be very uh, careful of that. The vision of Jesus we see in the Bible is different. I think it tells a different story of as we've seen in the the book of Matthew. Here, Jesus, who's not about retribution, 
What we see in his ministry and on the cross, it's something else. He absorbs our issues, our, our, our sin, and our problems in this world and overcomes evil by sacrificing himself on the cross, by showing the ultimate self-sacrificial love. And, and he is the one who will go out of his way to find that one lost, wandering sheep. You know, it's not, it's not the fact that you did something wrong and you're kicked out. I think more and more I think about it and more and more, uh, you know, we do this Christianity thing. I think you are already in. If you want to be out, you really have to be out. This is not like like the escape room, the game where you're trying to get yourself out of here, right? If you want to be out, go ahead. The door's right there. And it's not about believing and acting right to be in. If you want to be out, you have to be, you know, reject the reality of God as well. And if you are that one wandering sheep that is lost and you don't want to be found, you won't be found if that's what you want. And I think those are the natural consequences of people's decisions. Now, that still leaves us with this main point of the parable, which is to forgive as we have been forgiven. Now, Jesus brings forgiveness to the forefront. Now, several times, actually, uh, there's this continued theme in, in the letter of Matthew. Here is this relational God, a portrait. We see this motif of, of sac- not of sacrifice and judgment, you know, not of transaction, but of relationship. When I was in uh, Youth with a Mission, it's a mission organization, uh, wh- one of the books that I read, and he was a teacher in YOM, I think he still teaches actually, called Dean Sherman, he said this, I suggest to you that every problem in the world is a problem of wrong relationship." Where we're not loving God, others, and ourselves uh, by Dean Sherman. And, uh, you know, I was like thinking, that's way too simple. Like, that's way too, uh, putting it simply, you know, and I was like 18 or 19 at the time. Like, maybe he is right. And I, I think we who are made in his image are also relational. You know, we need to relate to others. And, and uh, uh, we are brought into this world by love, for love, to love, Right? That's supposed to be the original intent of our design. We're created from love to love for love, to love others. And so we need this relationship, and it's good for us. But the problem is, it's also the same thing that can profoundly hurt us from time to time. And continuously sometimes. And when someone hurts us, our instinct is not to forgive. Our instinct is to fight back, to get even, or to retreat. Right? But forgiveness might not come to the forefront right away. How much does this person deserve my kindness and hospitality because how they've hurt us? Right? Have you invited this person to your Thanksgiving dinner? Right? Uh, And Jesus replies, forgive as I have forgiven you. Well, but this person just crossed me and wronged me many, many times. And Jesus says, forgive as I have forgiven you. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 to 24, he says, uh, it says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus sets this precedent that this should be dealt with right away, to the point of that even if you're in the middle of service, and you remember someone, that you should go ahead and text them or call them. Uh, I won't fault you 
and or judge you, think that you're on Facebook or Instagram. Because, because I think what God is trying to say is that it's more important than worshiping God and Jesus, uh, as in, uh, in Matthew 5. That he wants you to do this first before coming to him. Uh, in uh, Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 25, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you and your sins. It's almost like he seems to care about those relationships, that even if you're in middle of prayer and you f- remember someone where you have attention with, work it out, right? And so he understands that, and he seems to care that these relationships, uh, he cares more about these relationships than, I guess, what we understand of worship and sacrifice. He really cares deeply about how we treat others. Um, one of the uh, missionaries and theologians that have impacted me uh, the most is uh, uh, a missionary named Leslie Newbigin. He was a British theologian missionary, uh, and mostly in India. I think he served in India for 20, 30 years. But one of the fascinating things that happened for you, uh, if you're just living in one specific culture, you go to another culture, uh, you have to sort of retell your experiences to the point of where they understand it. So you try to you know, translate your culture into their culture to sort of have that communication thing going. And so for him, for Leslie, as he's doing this with the gospel, he's realizing and almost sort of retelling the story for the Indian context, he realizes uh, that there were a lot of holes of some of the Christianity that he had back in UK in sort of this Western uh, Christian thought. Uh, later years, he kept preaching, and one of the things that have impacted me is that his idea that we are not brought into the kingdom of God for our own privilege, but for service. We are not brought into the kingdom of God for our own sake or our own piety, but to help others be free. And likewise, I, we're not forgiven as something that's due to us. It's not just a benefit to me, you know. In itself, it's connected to the community and for us to forgive others as well. And I think we have not fully realized this freedom of forgiveness unless we use that freedom to forgive others. Uh, There were some Jewish rabbis that taught that only those who forgive would be forgiven. And as we are freely forgiven, we should forgive others. And I know it's incredibly difficult and it requires grace that's beyond ourselves, uh, you know, including me. Uh, I think there was a, was it a self-help uh, guru, I can't remember her name, Marianne something, where she says, like, you know, unforgiveness and holding resentment is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person will die, right? It's really a bondage in itself where you're impacting the way you live, the way you treat your other, you know, others. Unforgiveness in your heart really does take numbers on you, and it can be a bondage. To act in unforgiveness, it might feel like you're getting some power uh, because, you know, if you were the victim, that's sort of the natural uh, reaction as well, that I want to be the one, the aggressor in some ways. But, you know, it it might be the way you try to control the way you behave, uh, how you treat your own family and loved ones, and that, all of that, I think, is reflected in your unforgiveness and resentment. Now, sometimes you don't need to approach the person to forgive them. You know, it's the relationship, if the relationship itself is not safe or, you know, you're just not there yet for reconciliation, you don't have to enter the relationship yet. You can forgive without being reconciled. You know, you can forgive from far if you need to, but you cannot reconcile without forgiveness. 
And other times when someone coming you know, to us to ask forgiveness, sometimes we say, it's fine. It's fine. Even though you're hurt, it's fine. But why do we say that? Where it's fine, where it's not fine. There is power in saying, I forgive you. There is power in the other person hearing saying, I forgive you. And for you to say it and to admit. Because saying it, I think, you know, saying that I admitted that I was hurt. And you're opening up yourself and being vulnerable. The other thing I do want to say is that we shouldn't wait. I, I think there's difference in waiting to be wise on, you know, how to navigate the situation. And just waiting because you, maybe you're afraid to confront the situation. Don't wait. If too much time passes, it can make it more difficult. You know, the hurt and the unforgiveness sometimes like solidifies in a way. And it's hard, much harder to chip it away the more you wait. It's more difficult to get to the point of forgiving and reconciling if you wait. And even if the reconciliation or the relationship isn't fully restored, at least you know that you've done your part. Uh, at least in your conscience and your heart. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 28, it says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Uh, it takes courage and boldness. And sometimes if you're not there yet and you're struggling with it, pray for them. And, and pray blessings. You know, even though they might have hurt me, I'm blessing this person. If you're not there yet where you are able to forgive, say, I bless this person right now, even though they might have hurt me. Because there is power in forgiving. And it may feel like you might have power in some ways of being unforgiving. You can be a captive in that way. Now, let me end with this. Uh, We see in Luke chapter 23 where Jesus is being crucified. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. This is despite the precedent in the Old Testament uh, where uh, there's this prayer of vengeance. We see in Jeremiah and Psalms and and other parts of uh, the Old Testament. But Jesus doesn't pray this prayer. He prays to forgive his persecutors. He prays for those those who are about to be executed who are supposed to uh, say, you know, may my death be atoned. But Jesus prays for them to be forgiven. Uh, there's a, the, a Croatian theologian, uh, Miloslav Volf, who describes forgiveness as a generosity, as a gift to the, uh, to, to the aggressor. It's the, it's a, forgiveness is a gift to the one who has been doing the wrongdoing. And when you forgive, not only are you imitating Christ, you are forgiving by the power of Christ where it's made possible. And so God first forgave us. Forgives you for the times that you rejected him, for the times that we've turned away, the times that we've hurt our family, with times that we've hurt ourselves, times that we have caused pain in others, our self-hate, hate in our own heart. And he forgives for the brokenness that we might have caused in our life, in our family, in our community. And he forgives you, either for yourself or for others. He forgives you. And now it's for us to forgive as we have been forgiven. And in this way, I think forgiving is divine. It's imitating Christ. But by going beyond our own powers, because we can't sometimes forgive by our own strength, and and tapping into the power of Jesus. Because without forgiveness, nothing can be restored. There's no reconciliation. Now, we take communion every week here. uh, And when we take communion, we do this and remember to, you know, the reality of Jesus, his body broken for us and the blood that was poured out for us. And we do this in memory of his sacrifice. Before we take communion, I would actually like us to say the Lord's Prayer, if we could all sort of stand up. And uh, so we, I, for the first service, I actually did this. 
And I uh, didn't realize all of us said the Lord's Prayer differently. And I actually don't know the American Lord's Prayer because I grew up with Korean Lord's Prayer. And so I was like just reading off NIV and I guess everybody said it differently. So we're going to go off this one here. Uh, The line, and be glory forever and ever and amen. That last line was actually uh, added later on. It's not in the original uh, manuscripts. But it was a common for Jewish people uh, to pray and the ending statements to be of praise. So we're going to do this. uh, And then I will pray after this. And if you want prayer uh, before taking communion, uh, there's uh, right out this door on the left side, there will be people who uh, will be praying for you. All right, let's pray. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is. God, as we take communion, help us to sense your love holding us. I pray for those who are having difficulty with forgiving themselves, give them strength. I pray for those who are having difficulty forgiving others, give them peace and love. And as we carry your image in this world, O oh Father, help us to love you and to love my neighbor. In the name of Jesus, amen.